So Jay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so as I mentioned, just before we start recording, I've been following your stuff for quite a while and I really, really like the way that you think and the way that you explain um, science and critical thinking. And I think it's going to be a really, really interesting conversation for those who are interested in uh, learning more, maybe not just about science, but just how to think. Um, So would you like to give a quick introduction into who you are? Uh, That would be really helpful. So, um, you know, first, obviously, thank you for having me on again. Um, my name is Jabian, you know, also known as Science by Jay on Instagram. I typically cover uh, nutritional science, but from the lens of sort of more of a public health, um, psychological and philosophical perspective, uh, which is unique, I think, in the fitness space. So instead of talking about um you know, what are the right macro breakdown for certain people or, you know, how, what should a nutrient timing for athletes or something like that? I'm more so interested in the wider implications of nutrition and how that impacts health at a population level. Um, and how do we think about nutrition in a critical sort of way? So that those are my two main interests online. And that's what I hope mm. to achieve as far as getting practitioners to think critically about these questions. And how did you get into nutrition in the first place? Was that something that you studied at college? Was it a personal interest? So when it comes to nutrition, it, it, believe it or not, I'm self-taught. So uh, when I first got into college or, you know, they call it uni and other places, um, I studied psychology and I was really interested in the connection between psychology and physical health because I, you know, I was reading some research about how physical activity was linked to decreased levels of depression and also stuff. So I was like, you know, what else about lifestyle can impact, you know, mental health? And another aspect of that was nutritional science. And so that's what got me into nutritional science in the first place. Uh, I bounced around a bit as far as believing, you know, a lot of stuff that I don't believe now. Um, now, you know, obviously trying to follow more evidence-based, science-based practitioners and seeing how they break down the literature, how they think about the literature, and how to think critically about nutrition itself. And um, understanding that even though nutrition is important, it's only a part of the puzzle. It's not the whole entire picture. Mm. And yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you're able to... Um, teach yourself i think a lot of people probably the majority of people who are in say this uh that uh, what do you call them educational creators or content creators for nutrition a lot of them are self-educated or a grand part of their uh knowledge is probably self-taught or or at least learned online say through non-formal education um how how did you kind of get so good at your ability to i suppose think critically and to be able to appraise certain types of research and and be able to kind of look at it in that sense because that's something a skill often that you would only get at, at a very minimum at a graduate level of of study it's in science so when it comes to um you know obviously science i i've always had an interest since i was a, ch- a child um you know i when i was younger i wanted to be a paleontologist i wanted to be a biologist i wanted to be You know, anything and everything that had to do with a scientist, I just didn't know what to call it. I was always into science. So, you know, when I got into university and I got some of the tools as far as learning how to read research itself, when it comes to research methodology, um, statistics, 
and uh, the basics of both, I kind of took those and ran with it. You know, when it comes to, uh, I always say there's a difference between formal instruction and education. Education is taking what you know, but to the next level and constantly refining, constantly teaching yourself, constantly looking at people who are smarter than you in the field and looking at what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, so that's pretty much how I approach nutritional science. Uh, at first, you know, obviously I was following into a lot of the fads, as a lot of people do when they walk into this field. And then I started to realize, you know, there's issues with these fads. And I started to question a lot. Um, and so that eventually led me to follow people who had actual credentials in the area, you know, PhDs, registered dietitians, uh, those with MSs in nutrition. And I was just like, how are they thinking about the literature? How are they thinking about research? And I started taking some of their frameworks and applying it to the research that I was reading. And that ultimately gave me a better understanding of it. You know, I, I would never sit there and prop myself up as this all-knowing expert. But I'm a, a definitely a lifelong learner when it comes to nutritional science and uh, also other fields as well. You know, psychology, philosophy, whatever. And I feel like these fields are all intertwined in some way and somehow. So that's how I try to bring my unique perspective into that. Mm. Just just on a side note of like philosophy, uh, one thing that I do notice is that like I recently started using Twitter. I joined like many years ago, but recently started using it and following. Uh, I don't know if it's I think it's just suggestive posts or through the algorithm. But like a lot of the people who are in the carnivore camp, they are their pictures on their profiles are like you know Seneca or Marcus Aurelius and I don't know whether it's like you know some what, what the link between stoicism and uh, eating carnivore diet is but there seems to be some sort of link there as if that's maybe like a masculine or a virtuous trait to be uh, I, I don't really know but it's it's pretty funny just uh, something that I noted yeah I mean that's the thing uh the misappropriation of stoicism because at one point I was really into stoicism I formally studied Stoicism with an actual philosopher. So, you know, we looked at the primary literature. We looked at um, sort of what what the actual texts were trying to get at. And what people don't understand is when they talk about these quotes of Stoicism, they're talking about the ethics, so how we ought to live. But there's a whole rich history with metaphysics, with um, logic-based systems and Stoicism, um, like there's so many working parts in the Stoic philosophy that we probably wouldn't even think about. And I don't want to make this all about Stoicism, obviously, because it's more about mm. nutrition. But I think the misappropriation happens when you read a couple quotes from, you know, people that you generally agree with and you start running with those. But you don't look at their broader work. You know, for instance, I see a lot of people quote Marcus Aurelius. But if you actually read Meditations, Marcus Aurelius talks about um, caring about one's community being of service, you know, um, understanding that people are not perfect, but you still have to help them in whichever way possible. And that's something that's often missing from the conversation. People would like to talk about, you know, well, uh, self-reliance and uh, only thinking, only worrying about what's in your control. But no one wants to talk about, you know, the grand community that is humanity and how do we help our fellow man out, which is also part of stoicism. Mm. Yeah, it, 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 they, uh, probably most of them haven't read any of it or, or couldn't understand the any of the, the, the copies of uh, any of the translated copies of meditations. W one final note on like, I suppose, f philosophy, modern day philosophers is that um, I noticed that like, 
a lot of the say rich or successful people that especially those who put out like youtube content whether whatever which one came first being you know rich and famous or putting out youtube content they're almost seen as like the modern day philosophers where they'll be like very successful in one area let's say business and then all of a sudden they're giving this like life advice as as say the the stoics would be back in you know 2000 2000 years ago which is just another pretty interesting thing and that's a lot of like young guys will look up to um which is just something that i noted but i digress right because <laughs> <laughs> i I'm, i know we're just going to end up talking about philosophy for about an hour <laughs> <laughs> which i'm totally down for i totally love philosophy i love talking about it um and now i'm studying it on the graduate level so i'm trying to currently uh, nice. get my master's in, in philosophy so when we talk about like these type of topics like there's just so much history there's so much mm. richness to each philosophical school of thought it's not just um you know you read one passage or one quote or one book and you automatically understand it. there's just so much going on mm. yeah yeah i get you but let's uh maybe we'll save that for another conversation another day yeah we definitely um, could so so yeah i guess um you mentioned a little bit about the kind of the camps of like some of the fallacies that you'd fallen for before. And I think we all did. I, I do recall uh, the first time that I ever read the bodybuilding.com forums. And there was a guy who was going to eat a little bit of junk food and do some extra cardio on the treadmill to to kind of burn that off and see how that would body react. And I remember I ate a packet of, of crisps, as we call them, you know, potato chips. And I was like kind of shocked that like I was eating these because I hadn't hadn't eaten them at least not in a binge um in a long long time um obviously that was you know when i was like 17 which was a long time ago but i also and i think it's mo- it's almost like a rite of passage where you fall for these fall for these um fallacies or camps why do you think that these nutrition extremes exist like they they both they they can't exist at the same time you can't have someone it can't be both true that, you know, veganism is absolutely terrible because of plants are, you know, they're toxic and they have anti-nutrients and they're terrible for you. At the same time, as others are saying, you know, um, meat is extremely terrible for your health and you should be following a, a completely vegan diet. They, they, they can't be, you know, coexist at the same time, at least right. both camps. So why, why do people fall for these extremes? And when I was thinking about this podcast, or some questions I was I was thinking it doesn't really exist so much in say the exercise space it, you know, a little bit but it also it almost seems that when new information comes out it's kind of broadly gets adopted over time and you don't have extreme people saying like oh no weightlifting is terrible for building muscle um most people kind of accept like new information and yeah, there's a little bit of nuance within that but within within nutrition it's like it's it's a it's a mess to to say to say the least Right. I think part of the issue with nutritional science is that um, unlike, you know, my personal opinion, unlike like exercise science, um, not everyone lifts weight, but everyone eats. Mm. So everyone has an opinion about what's the best way to eat. Um, so obviously, when it comes to uh, tribalism and, and nutrition, we have to understand fundamental human psychology. I think that's something that's missing from the conversation. Uh, there's this good book that recently came out called The Power of Us, and it's pretty much describing, like social psychologists describing how our so- who we identify with, our social identity, impacts our thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors. 
And obviously this is what's happening. People are identifying based on what they eat. And that's a lot easier than identifying, I guess, by how much, you know, like what lifts you like to lift by. You know, I, I think like most majority of the time, you know, compound lifts are uncontroversial for most people. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about uh, the nuances within nutrition, there's so, still some things that we don't yet know. Like we don't fully understand, you know, GI issues. We don't fully understand the microbiome. We don't fully under, we, we, we have some questions that we still need to answer within the field itself. And these gaps of knowledge are uh, leading people to seep in with their own BS and their own ideologies and their own um, explanation for what, what's going on. And it's really easy for from then from that point to form a social identity around a particular diet or a particular way of eating or a particular perspective within nutrition. Um, so it, it really is about fundamental human psychology. It's about group think. It's about group dynamics, and it's about uh, a person's self identity as a carnivore dieter, as a vegan dieter, or whatever other dieter you want to put out there. Um, it's deeper than just diet, obviously, but that's the starting point. And do you think it is because um, that person might have had good success, whatever success means, like if they had an issue or if they were trying to re reach a specific goal that they've had success with that, then that means they identify as that being the the way that will help everybody? Yeah. So a lot of times we, if you get into discussions online with people who are very fanatic, really adamant about their certain dietary approaches. It's usually from a very personal place. So we often prop up our personal stories above all else. Because um, I think, I mean, I don't want to make generalizations about humanity, but we're often very egotistical. So we often see things through the frame of our own experiences. And our own experiences often supersedes what other people have to say about it. So, you know, if I sit there and bring up data showing that, you know, vegetables aren't detrimental to your health, but you're like, I lost how much weight on a carnivore diet? How can you tell me that this approach is not working? It worked for me. It worked for me. So we have, we often fall into this trap of thinking that just because something worked for us, that it has to work for most people or other people. Um, another issue is, you know, we confuse short-term gains with long-term viability. So um, I talked recently about there was this rice diet. Uh, back in the 1960s that try to um, come at hypertension and individuals lost weight eating majority of carbohydrates majority of rice and fruit juice and some of them felt amazing some of the, their biomarkers actually improved their hypertension went down their cholesterol levels improved you know but those are short-term gains long-term viability you know you could feel great just by losing weight or have your biomarkers look good from losing weight in the short term, but is it a long-term viable strategy? And that's something that I think most people don't want to talk about when it comes to their personal experience with nutrition. Mm. I actually, on that topic, I interviewed, um, it was many years ago, before I actually started the podcast and just did some YouTube videos. I can't remember his second name, but his name was Anthony, and he, he was actually featured in Alan Aragon's research review, and for 100 for 100 days he just ate um ice cream whey protein and beer and he lost 30 pounds and you know he 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 there he, he in the short term he felt better but then he was saying towards the end 
it, he started to feel terrible because he's got no fiber. It's like probably deficient in uh, various micronutrients and just, uh, you know, it's just basically living off sugar and not very, uh, you know, not very voluminous food. So yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense. And I think that's what, one thing that comes to mind is the, the carnivore diet where people often see that as a fix for gut health or for gut problems, because it's essentially elimination. But, you know, over the, over five years, 10 years, 20 years, what how would the gut actually respond to that or what are the instances of gi problems or you know cancer associated with with the gi tract who knows and i think that's a that's i I think that also leads to another problem whereas like you said there's people filling these gaps especially i see a lot in the microbiome and clients that i would work with have, have gone to like a gut specialist not a gastroenterologist or something but a you know facebook or instagram gut specialist and they've got all these tests and i'm kind of saying well there's not that much information around the gut and i'm not an expert in it but and i'm saying well we don't know but yet there's someone over here saying like oh i know exactly what you should do and here's what you should do and here's what this means and here's what you should take it's hard for them even if they're an intelligent person to kind of say well i'm just going to go with the guy who says he doesn't know you know right right because confidence uh we we tend confidence is persuasive you know, mm-hmm. if if you're going through a particular issue, let's say GI problems, um, you know, immunological dysfunction. Uh, I'm trying to think what's the term for it. It's it's when it's uh, it's something that we don't like the immune system. We don't know a lot about them, like at, entirely the immune system. Why the immune system starts attacking the body? Autoimmune disease. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Autoimmune disease. We don't know a lot about GI issues. We don't know a lot. A lot about, especially when it comes to the microbiome, but I'm sorry about that, but, you know, um, obviously people would try to be confident and try to put their own spin on things and, and give people answers to their desperate, you know, questions and their desperate problems that they're dealing with. Um, so they're obviously going to fall into whatever those answers are, whether those answers are evidence-based or not. They're in a desperate situation. They want relief. They want someone to listen and pay attention to them. They want answers um so i mean that's why a lot of people often fall into those traps Mm. and is that why you think the same thing happens in say like alternative medicine where like traditional medicine or or what what they might call western medicine may not be working and like people start to try all these various things to try and uh to try and cure their cure themselves of their diseases Yeah, so when it comes to alternative medicine, the the, the main issue I, I see is um, modern medicine is very efficient, but it's often not very, um, there's not enough time. There's not enough time for patients to really talk to their doctors, really get to know their doctors. And um, a lot of times, especially when we talk about issues that we don't fully have answers for, uh, I'm not saying that it's often brushed to the side, but, mm. you know, people are not given what they want as far as a certain answer. So if you have someone that listens to you, that does an hour long session with you, takes into consideration everything that you're saying and gives you some type of answer for your problem, that's going to be very seductive. That's going to be very, um, that's going to pull you in a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously we have to take those, those things into consideration as far as, um, 
what are what are some of the pitfalls of modern day medicine and what does alternative medicine promise in place of that? Whether those promises are true or not is irrelevant to how it makes people feel because ultimately when it comes to health, people are very emotional. People uh, want to feel relief. They don't want to be in their situation. Mm. Yeah, I get you. And, and it, it is very difficult for people to to know what is what is true and what is not true because even even myself yesterday i was reading some stuff like i have a i just finished a couple of months ago a, a, a master's in a sports nutrition performance nutrition so it's not even uh like i, I did but previously i was studying a master's in nutrition but i swapped but even even within that there's so much stuff that's not covered and i was reading yesterday something about monosodium glutamate and just just seeing uh what what was the current data on it because uh, i i saw some videos saying that it's like you know terrible for your health but without any without any uh, evidence so i looked into it and there's this research paper saying there is like it's very detrimental and then there's there's a lot of information essentially and um and i and i spent a lot of time reading that and there's so many papers that i didn't even go through them all but then if you think about someone who say not has never even studied science or doesn't even know what pubmed is but yet they're very intelligent how are they supposed to know um you know you know what what information is good information and what information is bad information even considering you have people who are say mds and sometimes even phds that will spout this you know rubbish on online about whatever like you know you should eat more saturated fat or uh, sugar is going to increase your risk of cancer and things like that so i mean obviously when we get into issues like that we have to think about um, there's this concept that I learned from David McRaney, who uh, is in charge of the podcast, You Are Not So Smart. It's a really good podcast. I really encourage a lot of people to listen to it. But he talked about information silos. So, you know, during a natural disaster, often your normal modes of communication and information gathering are shut down. They're not the same as they were before the disaster hit. So how do you gauge what to trust uh, as far as information? You use trust-based cues. So I look at it this way. If a person doesn't have the background in science or, you know, to look through the literature or whatever, they're in an information silo. Regardless if they have Google at their fingertips or not, they're not equipped to answer the questions. They're not equipped to look into the topic at hand. So they have to rely on trust cues and trust signals. So whoever conveys that, whether it be an MD or PhD or whatever, that's full of excuse my French, but bullshit, they're going to fall into that because they ultimately try to trust that individual. Um, So that's something that we have to consider. Like trust is a big part of believing and not believing in bullshit. Yeah. And and I guess it it is challenging because one thing I've kind of thought about myself is that people who have say studied and I'm kind of have an eco chamber of say nutritionists and things like that, or dietitians and, um, not so much medical field, but people within that field that I would like follow and consume content from and exercise science is that when various conspiracy theories have arose, arose over the last few years for various different reasons and, and, you know, events that have come up, they're less likely to engage in those things. And obviously it's not because they know about, the medic medicine like you know i i know absolutely nothing about medicine but yet my ability to be able to gauge you know what something is maybe conspiratorial or not is is you know 
better, so to speak. And that's something that I'm just curious about and how others can perhaps think about that, uh, you know, not just in nutrition, but when other things come up like a future pandemic or, or, or other cons- conspiracies. So, I mean, like when it comes to thinking critically about health, I mean, like the, the problem is, is that, you know, we often, uh, a lot of people are very distrustful of, you know, governmental sources, authoritarian sources that we like to see expertise. So I think we need to get rid of this idea that um, to distrust the experts, they're experts for a reason, right? Uh, individual is an expert in virology for a reason. They're expert in immunology for a reason. They're expert in nutrition for a reason. So I think first we need to respect expertise when it comes to health. And realize that expertise is not always translatable. So just because someone's a cardiologist doesn't mean that they're going to understand the gut microbiome. Someone who, um, you know, obviously has a PhD in one area is not going to be so smart when it comes to another area. They're a very specialized expert. And this Mm. is not to say that people can't know certain things across disciplines because obviously we're talking about nutrition on nutrition right now but i don't have a clear background on nutrition if we're really being honest but the difference between i guess myself and people out there who spew bullshit online is that i trust the experts i look at what they say and i try to learn from them so i'm not trying to downplay the establishment i'm not trying to be a contrarian i'm trying to understand why the knowledge base is the way it is and that is a different approach than saying you know oh all those doctors or all those scientists or all those whatever officials are lying to me because of x y and z sort of like the conspiratorial thinking i think when it comes to critical thinking one of the hallmarks is curiosity um when you know when you're a scientist you're often trained to be curious you're trained to test your hypothesis. You're trained to test your assumptions. And, you know, that's something that I constantly try to strive for. Yeah, I, I, I think for, for me, one of the biggest, um, I suppose, trust builders, um, because there's areas like that I have not really much clue about, in, even within nutrition, say specific mechanistic pathways, et cetera, that I'm interested in, is that if they are willing to um, willing to be questioned and open to debate but not just debate for the sake of debate I, I recently read the book by david robert grimes they call it in in europe the irrational ape in america they call it good thinking um and he he mentioned that like, people wanted to debate him on tv about like uh hpv vaccine or something like that and he he was saying well it's, it's that's he, he was rejecting it not because he didn't want to debate it but it wasn't it wasn't something up to be it, it wasn't debatable. It was like, no, this it's a, it's a fact. And actually right. debating that would be uh, giving the, the opposite side of, of something that's been proven to be true. And the opposite of that, it would be giving it, I suppose, a foundation to be built off. So it's not like somebody like, let's say, David Sinclair saying that um, uh, whatever pathway, um, MNR or, or whatever the gene is, whatever the, the gene is called, that it increases longevity. Like he will not debate that with people or resveratrol. He will not debate anybody, even his colleagues that he has worked with um, previously in the lab. He won't debate them on on their findings because, uh, be, well, maybe because he knows that it's not true. But that 
does the opposite and I have like zero trust then in things that he says because he's just not willing to debate something that even other experts are saying um, are, are, are perhaps up for debate or are not necessarily 100% true. Right. So that's that's kind of one heuristic that I, I have myself. Um, moving kind of on then a little bit into uh, another side of nutrition, which you said we talk about as well, is, is more on the public health. There's something that you said you're interested in. And this is like, so obesity. So um, I know it's kind of a, a bit of a turn, but also it's something that is, it affects a lot of people, not just personally, but, you know, from a society perspective, and it's something that's ever increasing. What, what do you think are, say, the primary causes of, of obesity at the moment? Or what does the evidence show? And I know, of course, it's an, an excess of calories when we boil it down, but like what are, what is causing that? So when we talk about obesity, we need to reframe it from just talking about excess caloric intake. Obviously, we know that that's the case. That's the mechanism by which people become obese. You cannot become obese merely because, you know, your metabolism is broken. No, you had to overconsume calories over a certain amount of time, whether that's a long time, short amount of time, whatever, and that led to weight gain. However, where we get there is complicated. So it depends on societal factors psychological factors, biological factors, and a whole bunch of factors in between. It's not simple. For instance, uh, I just released um, pretty much a newsletter article showcasing that if we do public health interventions as far as, you know, cutting down on advertising high salt, high sugary foods, um, and high fatty foods, people's caloric intake decreases. That's by cutting down on advertisement. So that's a societal, social, psychological factor that, if we address, can lead to decreased caloric intake. Another mm. instance is food reformulation. You know, there's products that can be reformulated to be lower calorie. And when you do that, people's caloric intake decreases. So it's not just a matter of individual willpower, individual choice, but it's also a matter of what are the psychological, sociological factors that are impeding biology in a way that are getting people to overconsume in the first place? You get what I'm saying? And then not only that, we also have to look at the genetic component. And we also have to look at, I guess, people's medical history. You know, there's people that, um, for whatever reason, they have issues with the thyroid. It leads to decreased thermogenesis, um, and that can impact caloric balance, uh, energy balance, and that could lead to weight gain, you know? So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of different factors on a population level is more of a biopsychosocial phenomenon than anything. I wouldn't say it's purely a matter of biology. I wouldn't say it's purely a matter of psychology or society, but it's, it's all of these things put together. Mm. There does seem to be a disproportionate amount of obesity at a population level in those areas that are more so, uh, more economically deprived. Um, and I think there's various reasons why that might be the case. I think in the UK, there's like, I don't know if it's a linear correlation, but certainly some sort of casual relationship between the number of uh, McDonald's and other fast food chains and the, say, the average income or the social deprivation in, in that area. And what what would your thoughts then be on your, from your, say, uh, psycho or psychology background, like I remember it was a while ago. I, I, I try not to like get too involved in public health because it's not my 
the main area. But um, somebody replied to something when I when I mentioned it's more than just say you know calories. It would be well or you know well they may not have access to these foods but you can eat a healthy diet uh, if you go to say the equivalent of a, a kmart or or something like that costco and get them um, rice and beans and you can live you can get like a can of beans for 20 cents and you can get a, a kilogram or two whatever it is two pounds of rice for a dollar and you can feed yourself for three days like technically that's true and what would your thoughts be from that perspective then we say well it's just individual responsibility if they wanted to lose weight they could just eat rice and beans and some salt or whatever um i mean first of all i love rice and beans as a hispanic man uh that's part of my culture but to say you could sustain yourself off of rice and beans shows a complete lack of understanding of nutritional quality there's you know obviously going to be some vitamins and minerals and macronutrients devoid from that sort of diet and also to put it plainly on the like the square the like the shoulders of the individual you're you're assuming that that person has time to cook you're assuming that person has equipment to cook you're assuming that person has access to a market you know you're you're making so many different assumptions about that particular person let alone the whole entire population if that was so if it was so easy to have a nutritious diet why are so many people in the United States, for instance, so food insecure? Why are they relying so much on food pantries? Why are they relying so much on social services? You know, so it's it's not a matter of, well, this person is just being lazy and could go to the supermarket and just buy cheap foods. No, you're you're making so many different assumptions about that person. You're assuming they have time. You're assuming they have energy. You're assuming they have equipment. You're assuming that they have the funds. You're assuming so many different things. And if you're in an area deprived of, you know, nutritious food options, you're going to turn to the alternative, which is fast food chains. You're, you're, you know, like it, it's it's not so simple. It's not so like the, the one person could sit there and just make a difference in their whole entire life. It's the systems in place, which, like I said before, can impede upon and influence actions that people take. And. Do you think, because I know it's a public health problem uh, across the whole population, but, but do you think at an individual level that most people would want to say that most people that are obese, that, uh, even even in those areas where it's very difficult for them not to be because they're in an obesogenic environment, do you think that they would not want to be obese and that the 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 effort barriers to to get there are just so high? Or is it that some, or is that, or is that, would it be that a lot of people actually they don't care so much? Not not in the sense that they don't care about their health, but they it's not just a, a huge problem for them, other than what may come down the road. Right. I mean, you know, obviously, like I talked about those food, those interventions, public health interventions before in the past, where if you cut down on advertisement, you you do food reformulation, and you work on the food systems in place, people often consume less calories from you know, uh, high salt, high fat, high sugary foods, and they're consuming more nutritious foods. So, you know, obviously those public health interventions showcase the fact that it's not just individual choice. There, there's other factors going on that are influencing people's actions to seek out certain foods in the first place or have access to certain foods in the first place. And, you know, another thing that I want people to consider, especially in this public health um, sort of realm 
is that, you know, obviously there are greater societal factors which lead a person down a particular path. You know, when it comes to, let's say, obesity, um, I don't remember the name of the study from, from right when I'm thinking about it, but there was a study done in the UK with the UK Biobank data looking at socioeconomic status and lifestyle. Those who had, let's say, the worst lifestyle factors, but the highest socioeconomic status didn't suffer as much from health, uh, poor health outcomes compared to those who had the best lifestyle and low socioeconomic status. You know, so obviously we need to think about uh, greater societal factors which impede upon people's health. Do people even have access to health care? You know, like if, if they get sick or, you know, it, it's. It's just a lot more complicated. I wouldn't say that people are willingly choosing to be obese. I think it's a it's a function of their environment, which is like if you're in an environment that puts pressure on you to make certain choices, you're going to make those choices. And if there's no impact on that environment, then, you know, obviously, what choices do you really have? And another thing, mm-hmm. too, that I really want people to understand is that private industry is the driving force of public health, not government. Not, you know, other people, individuals, but corporations, food corporations. They're the ones advertising. They're the ones formulating these foods. They're the ones building these restaurants. They're the mm. driving force of public health in many instances. Mm. So, so, so not to kind of sound like Sam Harris, but do we have any freedom of choice? Is, is free will a, a thing? Because you will say, well, no, we, we shouldn't have sugar tax because I should be allowed to decide what I want to eat. I'll give you I'll give you an analogy. Let's say this is the I would say the illusion of choice. Let's say you have 10 different options. But you no no, let's say you had 100 different options, hypothetical options, but you can only afford to choose three of those options. Do you really hmm. have the wide range of choice? Do you really have options? Sure you have those three options, but you're constrained. You can only make three different options out of a hundred because of your situation. So you're not allowed to fulfill your full potential of choice because of your constraints. You know, mm. giving people the opportunity to make ch- choices as far as health means that we have to offer the wide range of choices and make those choices available to them. If not, we can't be surprised when they make certain choices. Mm. Yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense, and I, I guess it's it's probably a it's a huge question to ask. And if you knew the answer, you would uh, you'd be making a lot of money. But what is the you know what is the potential solution? Is it policy change? Um, and what 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 are those policy changes? Is it that the fast food industry gets taxed to the gills, or is there more restrictions around that, or is it more incentives from governments to poor families with with universal basic income or something like that i mean obviously i don't have all, all the answers for that. Yeah. i have some ideas excuse me but let me write them down <laughs> i have some ideas but you know we we do know that um regulating advertisement for you know foods that i mentioned before that are high salt high fat high sugary foods regulating those advertisements can help decrease caloric intake um Obviously, increasing the for the United States, for instance, increasing the quality and access of foods available in food banks and food pantries 
is important. You know, people often rely on food pantries and food banks, but they're not allowed to have these nutritionist foods because they don't have the equipment to hold them. They don't have storage. They don't have whatever. So, I mean, that's another option. And another option would be, you know, sort of like a, a tax, whatever you want to put on particular food items or bans on particular food items. And another solution could be reformulation, forcing manufacturers to make, I guess, more helpful options when they're uh, making their products. So, I mean, those are potential policy solutions that we can enact and we do have evidence that they could work. But, mm. you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of conflict of interest. There's going to be a lot of money involved. There's going to be a lot of different factors involved. And, you know, for some place like the United States, unfortunately, the dollar rules. So I'll just yeah, leave it I mean, yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, it, it, it's really hard to see how how they would make decisions that's going to financially hurt them. You can even see that with, like, the U.S. president meeting the, the prince of Saudi in France recently and, and the president of France uh, rolling out the red carpet for them, given, like, they know exactly what the history is that they've been doing. It's just because they're the oil or whatever and because of all of the, the, the blocks from Russia and things like that. So, it, yeah, it, it's hard to, to see how that would... Uh, how that will play out so you're saying it's not seed oils that we need to cut out of the diet and that's why everyone's <laughs> obese now <laughs> no i think it's it's these greater societal factors if you want to read more about this there's a great paper out there called the nutritional transition which uh, focuses on the research and development of a more obesogenic environment in developing countries because of the same issues that we're dealing with here with these really grand big food corporations influencing policy and influencing what's available choice. Like we said before, um, I obviously encourage everyone to read into something like that. The nutritional transition, just look that up on Google, see whatever you can find, read up on it. It's really impactful and powerful stuff. Um, you know, we try to put this simplistic narrative that one thing is causing X outcome when it's a bunch of different factors that we're putting into play a diet is the sum of its parts. It's not its parts. So mm. when we're talking about dietary patterns, we need to think about it as a pattern. You know, obviously, we have clear and powerful evidence that seed oils are not inflammatory. They're not harmful. If anything, they're beneficial. The problem is, is that, you know, Americans, they're consuming more than 10% of their diet in saturated fat. They're consuming really high amounts of sodium. They're consuming a lot of added sugars. They're consuming a lot of refined grains. And, you know, they're not following any USA dietary guidelines at all. So we mm. can't blame that. Um, so we had to look at these bigger factors and, and the yeah. bigger pieces to the puzzle. It, it is pretty funny when people say, like, the, the public health guidelines for nutrition are making people fat. It's like, well, nobody actually follows them. Um, <laughs> but it'd be interesting to see, like, just given that like some countries in Asia and, and Africa are like really poor and, and people are not overweight because they, they literally have, they literally have trouble finding food full stop. It's like over the next few decades or century, as these countries get, you know, they get more, they get, they get richer or the, the GDP increases, but they still remain relatively poor compared to developed countries. Will the obesity in these countries absolutely skyrocket because they will still be poor? It'll be still uh, tr challenges of access to kitchens and 
fridge freezers and things like that and so something that i just kind of thought about that like you, those countries may explode because they'll still be relatively poor but they'll have enough money to perhaps buy fast food and and um you know they'll be at a level comparative to poorer areas of developed countries um right just kind of I thought mean, we're seeing it right now overnutrition in these countries you know look at china for instance Ever since its modernization and development, obesity rates have increased. While it's not the same level as the United States, it's still an increase. It's a notable increase. So, you know, these are things that we have to consider when we modernize and urbanize. There are certain factors in place that are going to happen. And we're seeing it across different populations. Those in developing countries uh, and who are impoverished are more likely to become obese when we start modernizing those countries. So, mm. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence. It can't be. And when we break it down into, say, demographics, are we seeing the increase in obesity uh, rise or stagnate at a you know at a different rate compared in the upper class, uh, whatever the upper class is, or say the the, the top twenty five percent quartile versus the, the the bottom quartile in terms of the increases in obesity in say like us or or the uk so i mean obviously the the bottom quartile are the ones that are more at risk for increasing rates of obesity those of higher socioeconomic status um often uh can afford to follow health dietary lifestyle patterns um, that a lot of us can't, and they're more likely to have access to healthcare. They're more likely to have access to quality healthcare. They're, they're more likely to have leisure time to care about, you know, these different facets of their life. Um, so of course we wouldn't see as much rise in obesity in those levels. Um, but you know, obviously, like I said before, in my previous example for the UK, even if they were obese, they still would be better off than those who were obese mm -hmm. and impoverished. They just would be. And it's because of these greater factors that, you know, we're talking about um, access to healthcare, access to nutritious foods. They can afford a chef. They can afford a, a, a coach. You know, they can afford certain things that probably other people can't. They can afford to go to the gym. You know, that's another barrier that a lot of people don't they don't have time. They don't have money. You know, mm. so, I mean, when it comes to thinking holistically about nutrition, we need to include not only the biochemistry and uh, metabolism, we have to include public health factors. Mm. Yeah. And I, I, this is the final question, but I, we've I, you kind of answered it broadly throughout this conversation. But can personalized nutrition be extrapolated to the public or to, to the public health guidelines? I would say no. I would say that we have certain dietary patterns. We say patterns for a reason. Not everyone has the means or the motivation or the ethical considerations or whatever to follow the same dietary pattern as someone else. And individual differences are important. Like there's certain people that have celiac disease. They can't eat gluten, you know? So obviously that ha we can't just apply that to everyone because not everyone has celiac disease. Or you're talking to someone who has diabetes, their blood sugar levels are more of a concern or consideration than a regular person who doesn't have diabetes. So personalized nutrition is really important for the individual. Uh, on a population level, we usually try to follow patterns. We, we try to follow general guides for what we should be doing. 
But obviously there's going to be nuance in that because not everyone has the same situation. Not everyone has the same uh, health history. Not everyone has the same medication history. Not everyone has the same factors going on for them. So I think when we're talking about this broad public health approach, we need to think in terms of patterns, patterns of diet. When we're thinking in terms of individual, we need to think in terms of individual needs. What do they need? What is optimal for them? What do they even want? Because that's also an important consideration too. Mm, yeah, so I, I do get frustrated sometimes when I when I read online. Um, the, the probably common denominator here is I stopped reading stuff online, but is when I see uh, like nutritionists, which obviously is a catch-all term, um, s- saying that you know people can just you know f- use my fitness pal or uh, you know create a deficit and. And, and lose fat as if as if because it's worked for their client who i don't know lives in rhode island and pays them 200 dollars a week to train them uh that can be extrapolated to someone in say a poorer state or a poorer part of a, of a poorer state um it, it does get frustrating because i guess it's just a lack of knowledge uh from their point and 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 some people not really and even you know this would have been me a couple of years ago not realizing that some people they, they simply don't have a, a fridge and our microwave, yeah. you know, it's, 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 um, it's crazy to think that, that that's quite a, a large percent of the population, um, yeah. or much larger than you would, would you thought. Right. But it's been, it's been great to talk to you, uh, JB. And so thanks so much for coming on. What, what's, what's new at you? What keeps you up at night and what's, what's next? <laughs> so what's new with me is I moved to a new city. So obviously, as you can see in my background, this is not my room. I moved to Philadelphia, um nice. so the sixers uh, yeah. the, the big city i mean i'm here trying to go to go to my new university which i'm studying philosophy um what was the next question it was you know what's new with you what keeps you up at night <laughs> <laughs> what keeps me up at night i think what keeps me up at night is the other than the roommates <laughs> is <laughs> as you saw right is the uh existential dread um that pretty much humanity has so much knowledge at their fingertips but they just don't know what to do with it i think that's what keeps me up at night you know how could people who are seemingly smart think so uncritically uh that that's what really bothers me and what's next is obviously like finishing this master's um trying to do a phd probably in psychology and uh how people think critically uh on an individual and societal level about many of these factors related to lifestyle I think lifestyle and mental health are very interconnected. I think we overemphasize one and not the other. And I think that uh, we don't look at these grander factors that impede upon one and the other. So I think that's going to be the focus of what I really want to get at. Awesome. And where can people find more about what you and your work? So I'm on Instagram at science by J. So it's at science by J J A E. Um, I'm also on Twitter, same handle. Also on TikTok, same handle. I'm also on Substack, same handle, but you know, at Substack.com. I usually do my newsletter and stuff like that. So, I mean, if you want to really want to look at my work, my Substack is the best place to look at that. Awesome. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Once again, thanks so much for coming on, man. Thank you for having me.